You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Pam Moran, who just wrapped up 32 years with the Albemarle County Public Schools. Starting as a science teacher and concluding with a dozen years as superintendent, Pam has quietly become one of America's leading educators because the work she leads is so compelling. With two of her Albemarle colleagues, Moran just published a book of lessons learned. It's called Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. In this interview, Tom talks to Pam about the book and the work. Let's listen in. Pam Moran, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Oh, Tom, it's great to be here with you today. It's a beautiful day in Virginia with those gorgeous white cumulus clouds that we uh love here and I'm just excited to be able to talk with you about uh, the work that I've been engaged in with a lot of others. I would call it a cast of thousands. So thank you for having me today. Congratulations on 32 extraordinary years in Albemarle County. That's Charlottesville, Virginia, for folks that don't know. You, you had a terrific run as, a, as an educator and a, a teacher leader in Albemarle County. And, and first of all, we just want to congratulate you and thank you for your amazing contribution there. Well, I certainly appreciate it, Tom. And I know that, that you remember the days of being a superintendent and it's a, a, a job that does not come without challenges on most days. But one of the things that I've really loved across my entire career, whether it was as a teacher in the classroom 43 years ago or the day I walked out as a superintendent is that the work we do, I describe as the most important profession that exists and that I feel I have as much love and passion for the work that I've done now as I did on that first day in a classroom. Well, I saw that in action uh, recently, and I also saw a lot of love from the uh, students and teachers that you uh, work with. So it, um, you, you've had a Big impact on that community, and uh, and they certainly appreciate it. And and I think that you know that it's a real mutual uh, focus that that we've had here on how do we as a community come together, whether it's the the folks that are in our parent community, our business community, um, our school communities, and even you know obviously the most important reason that we're all here is for our students. And how do we really leverage up that sense of that? When when people come to believe inside communities that their voices matter, that they're important, that they have a real sense of agency and ownership for the work they're trying to accomplish. And I think that's as true in the, the private sector as it is in the public sector, as it is in uh, even the, uh, the, the school sector, that people who believe their voices matter, who believe that they really own the work that they're doing, they own their learning and start to see that as a result of that, that they have influence and that things can change as a result of their influence, that all of a sudden you have a different kind of synergy than in a typical hierarchical structured uh, institution. Did you uh, decide you were going to be a teacher when you were in high school? You know, that's a really interesting question. I I go back to my my roots and like a lot of uh, young girls <laughs> that uh, came through in the, the, the uh, baby boomer generation that I certainly had my love of playing a little bit of school when I was young. I uh, had a teacher who was incredibly influential. I had the same teacher for chemistry, physics, 
biology. She was uh, the earth science teacher and also did guidance counseling in her spare time in a very tiny rural school in the deep south in South Carolina, who said to me in, in biology class, she said, you know, you have a real affinity for this. And I'd love to, to encourage you to consider doing something with biology and maybe even to consider teaching. When I went off to college, I, I actually thought that I was going to be chasing snakes in the Everglades. I had a real affinity for the outdoors from growing up on a farm in the, the swamps of the low country, but found myself really being drawn to herpetology. And by the time I was heading out of college, I really had this drawback to teaching uh, ended up coming to, to Charlottesville, Virginia, with some connections to the University of Virginia, ended up teaching in an environmental education program in a tiny rural system that had a huge grant from the federal government to implement environmental education across the curriculum. It was right up my alley. And so I would say that that I was able to marry a real love of science with a real interest in, and value for working with young people. I had taught, you know, uh, children as a tutor through school. I had worked with uh, kids in, in my local church. Um, and so had a real interest in, in the idea that I might end up working in education. But I also had this real affinity for thinking about doing field biology, put those two together and had a wonderful uh, number of years working in that together before I branched out into administration. That's probably more than anybody wants to know about my early life. Uh, Pam? Congratulations on your new book. You had a, a book that uh, just came out. It's called Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. We're going to talk about that book and the, uh, and the characters that wrote the book with you, uh, Ira Sokol and Chad Ratliff, uh, both veteran educators that uh, have worked with you in, in Albemarle. Uh, Let's start by um, by talking about the impetus of uh, for the book. When when and why did you decide uh, you had a book to write? Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. I've always really loved reading education resources, among other things that I love to read. Uh, but over the last few years, and and the work in in Albemarle that I would call a contemporary progressive education approach really began in 2002 uh, under the administration of a prior, a prior superintendent where we really wanted to look at what's beyond the uh, No Child Left Behind Act of 2001. And we wanted to be sure that even with increased accountability and a focus on state standards and a state assessment system that was a, a pretty traditional system at the point it rolled out, how do we really sustain passion, interest, and love of learning in both teachers and in our, our learners? And so we embarked on a project that we called Design 2004, where we asked teachers from across the system to uh, write proposals that would uh, ground interdisciplinary learning, use of technology, uh, performance or, or uh, portfolio-based assessments that would be value added along with the other work that we were obviously doing to implement um, our state standards in Virginia, as well as the state testing program. From that, we continued to build on that. Dr. Kastner, who was the superintendent at the time, left in 2005. I became superintendent. 
And every year we were adding pieces to the puzzle of how do you build deep transferable learning. I was a, uh, a real uh, uh, student of the Tayac and Cuban work around tinkering towards utopia and really trying to figure out how do you get to that deep change. And I knew it wasn't going to happen in a year. I knew it wouldn't happen with quick fixes. And I knew it wouldn't happen because of me as the superintendent alone having that vision. So over time, what we did was to really build that collaborative culture where we added elements in. And at some point, probably around 2013, I felt like that we had the work deeply embedded enough that we would be ready to tell the story at some point. And it's not my story or Chad's story or Ira's story. It's really the story of many people who have been a part of a school culture of change in which we have uh, extended that work that we've been doing beyond you know, the, the state standards to really go after things like project-based learning, maker work, uh, looking at interdisciplinary learning, next generation focus with high schools, uh, the structures of scheduling and routines and testing and uh, all of the things that, that really make up what schools do. And of course, as you know from your visit, we've added in uh, in the years uh, recently a real focus on how do learning spaces get redesigned to support the changes in pedagogy and the, the changes in curriculum that we believe are going to get our kids to a different kind of result and when we talk about the results that we're after, we're talking about competencies, lifelong learning competencies in Albemarle County are clearly what we see as the exit competencies we want all kids taking with them into uh, life. And so we, we really sort of developed a, a focus on that we're not just educating kids to pass tests, we're educating kids to be ready for entering the workforce. Uh, their homes, their communities with skill sets and competencies that are going to allow them to be really great citizens, but also to continue to iterate their learning across their lifetimes. And we know in this day and age, Tom, that our kids are not going to go to work in one job and have that job stay basically the same for the remainder of a career. We know that there are going to be radical changes. One of the things that we've really started working on as of recent that we believe is a next generation is how do we really deepen our commitment to social emotional learning? We see that as being what will basically um, proof our kids to be able to be successful in a variety of different workforce career um, areas that are not going to be based on necessarily what people know in a static way, but what people can do to evolve and add skills, add competencies, and iterate the knowledge that they need to be successful. We know from white collar jobs to blue collar jobs to high tech jobs, a lot of those jobs are going to disappear or they're going to change radically. And our kids need to be ready for that. So that's where we've been aiming for a long time. And that, I guess, hence the title, uh, Timeless Learning, right? Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I said to Ken Kay with uh, Ed Leader 21, and, and we have been uh, associated, affiliated with Ed Leader 21 for a number of years now, is that when you talk about whether it's critical thinking, collaboration, uh, creativity or communication, or as Virginia has added in with their five C's, citizenship, the reality is those things were as helpful 
you know, five centuries ago or, you know, a millennium ago that we believe that that those are timeless qualities of what humans do who are learning creatures heading towards being able to be successful in their lives. And so, you know, we've tried to, to really think about that it's really not about 21st century learning. It's really more about any century learning and that the timeless kinds of things that, that people have done to educate up young people have really stayed the course, whether it's storytelling, uh, physical interaction uh, with, you know, projects, with materials, with resources. It doesn't really matter. If you go back, the best of who we have been as as educators has always been on a, a platform in which our kids are engaged and that they are learning skill sets in a really active way that they can transfer forward. And so, you know, that's why, you know, we really see this work as being timeless. We see it as being about imagination. We talk about that educators are some of the most creative, inventive people that exist in any profession. They have to be. Um, uh, they are a do-it-yourself uh, generation of, of uh, people who teach others. They have to make things all the time. And if we can make sure that neither our educators or our kids are checking their creativity at the schoolhouse doors, we're going to end up with a culture inside schools that is all about trying to get beyond the horizon and not just look at the horizon and hope that one day somebody will, will be able to get there on our behalf. And so we've really, we've really worked on how do we take imagination inside our schools and outside our schools? How do we use observation as a way to get deeply focused in terms of inquiry, asking questions, really focusing on what does it take to get all children, every child, to a place where they are able to graduate and walk out with the effective uh, competencies they need to be successful in life. And that's not something that we've conquered. I'm not sure there are many places in the country that have, but it's someplace that if we don't aspire to finding those learning paths that let every child be able to get to their hopes and dreams, then we will always sit with opportunity gaps that equal achievement gaps, that equal kids that, that fall into divides of all sorts as they move from childhood to adolescence to adulthood. And so that's what we're really trying to do is to figure out how do we not just fill in gaps, but how do we rise above those gaps in the work that we do? So I appreciate the equity focus of chapter one, where you talk about all means all. Uh, Pam, one of the most interesting things about you and your co-authors is that you you really stress seeing children, that we must get better at seeing children. I'll read a, a quick quote from the introduction. It says, once we're able to see clearly what is happening with children in our schools and outside of schools, we will then be on the path to learn how to take rapid yet considered actions to change the education we have inherited. We'd love to have you talk about seeing children more clearly. I, I think that that is one of the key areas of focus that, that I take away from, you know, I didn't start out life as an early childhood educator or even an elementary educator, but I went into a school as an elementary principal uh, in 1990. 
And one of the things that, that was a real key area of focus at that point in time was something called kid watching. How do you really study what kids are doing, how they learn, what they prefer to do as learners, uh, what the challenges are that seem to cause some kids to struggle, others not, and how do teachers grab that capability to observe kids on the playground, in the classroom, even in the cafeteria or in the hallways, and put that data together. It's a different kind of data because it's more qualitative in nature, um, and marry that to, to quantitative data, whether it's literacy data or math data or uh, science and social studies or arts data, whatever the source is that looks at what kids are doing to progress, how do teachers get better at watching kids figuring out what that child needs. And I guess that in a day and age where we talk about personalized learning, um, I don't think of personalized learning as just being about technology as a way of, of differentiating or giving kids a, a capability to pace faster or slower. I think about it as being more of what a teacher knows, understands, and does to take in the whole child and be able to craft what kinds of opportunities and choices uh, they can bring to bear based on kids' interests, based on the context of the learning. You, um, in the introduction, you do this um, a beautiful summary, I think, of your collective philosophy that uh, schools need to move from content-driven, adult-determined teaching to context-driven, child-determined learning. I thought that was a very nice description of what I saw on the ground in Albemarle. Yes, it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about the work. You know, that, that one of the things that the accountability movement did, and there are some good things that came out of it, and I think there were some things that really challenged educators uh, in a way that, that uh, perhaps created more narrowed, filtered paths in terms of what kids were able to do it and to access learning. And, you know, when we talk about equity, we talk about equity, access, and opportunity as being almost a three-legged stool of what we have to do here or anywhere else in the country if you're really going to go after uh, rising above those gaps that, that we worry so much about. That um, when we talk about context-driven, child-determined learning, one of the things that we have found is that our teachers who really dig in and figure out what kids are interested in, in terms of their own questions and curiosities, that when teachers can take that and connect it back to content that may be prescribed in a standard, that what you start to do are to see kids who engage very differently with the, the learning work that's going on in the classroom. The other thing that we acknowledge is that kids are sometimes interested in learning things that are not a part of the curriculum. And how do we make that work something that is as authentically a part of where kids can go as learners as the work that is more prescribed? And so, you know, we, we really look at, you know, that if a child is um, interested in something around uh, aviation, or it could be flight, it could be a little kid who's gotten enamored with uh, drones. How do we take that interest and allow a child to move that into, could be what they read about, it may be what they write about, it may be about 
the questions that they would like to answer through a, a more science frame. It could be about uh, about uh, the narrative of, of history that, that's connected to flight. We have a kid in one of our high schools who, um, and I think of the drone piece pretty naturally because he absolutely was just taken with drones and was watching a lot of drone movies and so forth and so on on YouTube and was really excited. And he walked into a new makerspace we had one day in a library, high school library. And he said, he looked at the materials in there. And he was like, oh my gosh, I can make drones in here. And he did. And then the principal said to him, so who else in the school is interested in drones? He said, I'm not real sure. Principal said, why don't you take some of your drones to the cafeteria with you today? The next thing you know, this kid has a drone club up and running. He gets a call from the middle school next door, goes over there, starts working with one of the mechatronics labs teachers and doing some work with drones in that middle school. Now, he's still a high school student. He ends up speaking at the World Maker Fair in New York City. He was a keynoter, had everybody on their feet clapping at the end, particularly when he announced he was going to run for the school board after he graduated from high school, which he did. And one of the things that he says is that he found a real love of something that was very important to him. And one of his comments to me was, you know, Ms. Moran, people underestimate how important informal learning is for kids in school, particularly in high school. Today, he spent his last year in a gap year working in policy work. He's off to college this next year. But one of the things he did this past year was to help develop a curriculum around aviation and to co-teach it in that middle school. And so I think that, that, you know, that's a story that's worth telling because when you have a young person who can find that interest, turn it into a passion, have us support it up and end up and being a really extraordinary kid who describes himself as pretty ordinary. You know, he says, you know, I'm just an ordinary kid. I'm not the kind of kid that's going to end up with a lot of scholarships. I'm not going to get accepted at highly competitive schools. But I got to tell you, this is a kid who is set for life with some skill sets that would have never been seen if we had not put that makerspace in that library. Um, on the other hand, we are, you know, piloting interdisciplinary courses in the schools. We have a course called American Fusion that we've been teaching in one of our high schools that looks at the story of America through the lens of a citizen and immigrant approach that is uh, an amazing course. The, the teacher in that class was just named the Virginia History Teacher of the Year. Um, and his goal was how do kids find their place in the narrative of history and be able to take it to the next level? We had a grant from um, a very tiny grant from um, um, LRNG and uh, the National Writing Project that turned into this huge monument project which we didn't anticipate was going to take on a life of its own. But after August 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, last year in Albemarle County surrounds Charlottesville, that became a project in which kids had a real deep sense of ownership for project-based learning in which they tried to really assess, whether it's Washington, D.C. or Richmond or Charlottesville or Montpelier or Monticello, what do memorials do? Whose stories gets told? And what the kids finally landed on is of the people who live in different times when monuments and memorials are erected, 
whose story is not getting told? And so what they did was to divide, to uh, devise their own monuments and memorials that they took to an exposition at the end of the year for our community. And people were pretty blown away by the stories that these kids told through their monuments and memorials that they had built, some of which were digital, which was pretty cool. So what I really see is that context and learner-determined work is as relevant in elementary as it is in middle, as it is in high school, as it is in life. And it is relevant through the context paths that we as educators, by studying kids, by imagining opportunities that we might never consider that could happen in schools, putting that together and saying, let's not let the traditions interfere with us doing the take it back to ground zero to what we call zero-based thinking, and let's build this up from the ground. Too many times, I think that what we do as teachers and even as superintendents is that we tend to take what we did the year before and we might tweak it a little bit. So we tinker with it. But what we're seeing is that when teachers and kids literally go to that zero-based design where they start from scratch, what you get is a very different kind of process of progress and outcome than when you are simply allowing the standards on a page written by somebody in some other part of the state to define your approach, and you're just simply preparing kids to pass a test. Uh, I hadn't um, I hadn't heard of zero-based design, but I, I've talked frequently about zero-based budgeting, so I I, I like um, I like that sense of if you were going to start over, how would we do this right? Um, and you've really applied that not only to learning experiences but learning environments. I um, I'm really excited about the multi-age space that you created. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, uh, where that idea came from and how those spaces were developed. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's really interesting because um, you probably, Tom, you, you've got some, some past history in education that goes back a ways, too. But multi-age spaces have been around in American schools since the beginning of American schools. I mean, it, it ultimately was the one-room schoolhouse model. And when we, when we moved into the factory school model in the, the early 1910s, which was a very purposeful move, and interestingly enough, there was pushback against that. There's a, a letter from the state superintendent in Michigan saying, we really, this is a big mistake to the legislature to, to go to these uh, uh, more congregated uh, cells and bells, uh, egg crate schools, you know, in whatever language he used during that time. But the reality, there was a very, you know, clear purpose behind that shift. Um, one of the things that, that we've really tried to do is to study how children learn and to really look at not just what's happened in our country that has been some of the better um, opportunities for kids in terms of learning um, uh, both experience as well as space design, but we've also looked at other places in the world. So if you go to Ireland, for example, and, and I spent some time there a few years ago, they can't imagine not having multi-age spaces. Um, they see it as, as a real advantage. As one teacher said to me when I asked her, I said, wouldn't you rather have all five-year-olds together? And she said, well, if I had all five-year-olds, how would they ever learn to be seven? And so their, their sense is that children model what they see. And if they see older children doing the things that, that you do in communities that are good things, including older children being empathetic to younger children and helping them and supporting them, 
that that's how you learn to grow up into the next age that's ahead of you. So it's a really different way to think about learning. Um, there's some some interesting research right now that that's come out. Um, uh, Linda Darling Hammond has some, done some of this. There's some out of North Carolina that says that anytime kids stay together in a group and a cohort, whether it's a team, whether it's in looping or even in a multi-age environment, such as you'll find in Montessori, that over a three-year period, you will see kids really widen achievement um, performance against kids that stay in, in uh, grade-banded curriculum. But you also see an increase in the social-emotional learning capabilities. Now, you know, the research is a little mixed on multi-age, but there's enough there now and more that's, that's emerging that says this is something we should really be considering in America's schools as one strategy. Now, maybe not every child really and every parent's ready for that, but we've been, uh, we've been working with multi-age and we're finding some real successes. We're finding that we have some things that we really need to work on to get it right. But um, we're really excited about some of the initial information that's suggesting that this does really make a difference for kids. Now, we also, you know, and, and the thing's kind of interesting is high schools have always been, and middle schools too, to some extent, multi-age spaces where kids are not limited to accessing more uh, rigorous curriculum or moving up or taking things that are in classes with kids that are older or younger. But elementary has been very set in a uh, age um, grade-based banding um, uh, structure for, for probably 20-some years. There used to be a lot more multi-age until the accountability movement really attached tests to grades and grade level curriculum. So we're, we're seeing this as a real step um, towards a more contemporary way of thinking about uh, social learning communities, how kids can be grouped more flexibly, how kids can learn um, what it means to work inside a community in a way that, that does look at social emotional context, not just the academic context as being important to be able to have peer-to-peer -peer networking as well as what we call aspirational peers. And we heard this from a couple of the teachers at the Agner Hurt um, uh, multi-age space who said, our third graders look at the math the fifth graders are doing and they say, that's what we want to do. Or they look at the older kids and see them doing things that are really positive, uh, like, you know, helping to cook a meal for the younger kids and say, I want to be like that. So putting kids in a place where they can grow using aspirational peers as a model is, we think, a really good thing. There's a lot of different ways to do multi-age, and we have probably every school doing some versions of multi-age in different ways, whether it's grade-level buddies or, uh, you know, just a variety of different formats for doing that. But these, the school that you saw and the next one that we're rolling out are going to have fairly large multi-age spaces that... Um, allow teachers to really have maximal flexibility in the way that they think about how kids work together, how kids learn socially. Um, so that I think, but the other thing that we're getting ready to open in August and, and Ira Sokol is, is, uh, has chief responsibility for this is um, um, the Albemarle Tech space where we are literally renting 45,000 square feet in what was an old manufacturing plant for phone systems that um, is now become sort of a hub of startups and early uh, 
um, build out uh, businesses in our community. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be putting kids in a center there who have a real interest in some project that has a technology base to it that they want to accomplish. And the kids will be there. We're going to start this next year with um, uh, kids that are seniors. And then we're going to then go back the next year and bump it down and to bring in younger students and move them forward there. But we see it as an opportunity. We're going to co-locate those kids with our tech department. So they're going to get to see what does the real world of people working in technology look like, whether it's system engineers, whether it's our learning tech designer folks, whether it's our folks that, that do networking or break and fix work. It doesn't matter. They'll be able to be rubbing shoulders with people that are adults who do the real deal work. They'll also be able to get out into internships in that building and beyond um, very easily. And we see that as the future of high schools in the United States. We see those models all over the country emerging. Some are ahead of us, some are behind us. But one of the things that we know is that high school kids want more than anything a sense that, that they have a relationship with adults, that they have a real belief that that relevance, that those authentic contextual connections of what they're learning to what they want to learn are important. And lastly, that they're doing work that's not just going through the motions, but there's some challenge to it and they have to figure some things out. So we see the anchor of our elementary work to where we're looking to go to a more center-based focus in high schools as being a natural evolution that builds kids' Um, competencies, and particularly their autonomy as learners over time, because our, our kids should not finish high school and basically have about the same level of structure and experience in terms of similarity as a 12th grader, as they had as a ninth grader, as they had as a fifth grader. There should be a real evolution that parallels what we know about how humans learn and how they move through rites of passage to adulthood. How do we give more control? How do we give kids more autonomy? How do we provide more opportunities for them to really be able to branch out by the time they're 18? And I got to tell you, when I talked to, I served on the uh, um, uh, State Council for Higher Education in Virginia for four years and heard over and over again from college presidents in Virginia that kids don't bump out of their freshman year because of a lack of academic preparation. They leave because they do not have, whether it's time management, whether it's the capability to um, really, you know, have a level of resilience to get through projects that they're working on or papers that they're working on or coursework, that the things that bump kids out are really related to the fact that these kids have never had an experience of having to learn how to manage their own lives. We see that high school experience as heading kids towards taking on greater and greater responsibility so that by the time they graduate and go to college or into the workforce, that they don't need somebody to say to them, you need to get up and go to class or you need to get your paper done and turned in or your project, you've got to show up for your group that's working on a project. So, you know, so we see this as a big picture of progression. So if you want to go back to the word progressive, we believe that education should be progressing from whether you're a four-year-old in a, one of our pre-K programs or coming in as a kindergartner through age 18, 
that you should be moving up, not just in terms of the, the difficulty of the textbook that you're reading or the novel that you're reading or the science experiment that you're doing or the math problem you're asked to solve, but it should be about what's the progression of increasingly challenging life experiences that ready you for that rite of passage to adulthood. We think that timeless learning, going back to those basic tenets, is a way that that schools could really change the game, truly, for, for young people being ready for life. That's a great description. Let's... Uh... Let's talk about the book. Uh, how, if you were going to write a headline for each of your co-authors, how would you describe them? So, in in headline length, Ira Sokol, uh, chief provocateur. Yes, <laughs> he's the one who I, asks the, the the questions that push people's thinking, that sometimes make people angry, frustrated, that cause people to walk away and maybe scratch their head and think, I got to really dig deeper on this. Um, right. He pushes people to think. How about Chad? How would you headline Chad? A radical entrepreneur. Um, Chad can't walk into a situation without saying, what about this can I really effectuate up, to borrow the language from the entrepreneurial uh, folks over at the Darden School, um, Sarah Saravathi in particular, who talks about that an entrepreneur doesn't just generate up an idea that they think is going to be something that, that will be attractive to other people that they might want to buy or invest in. But an entrepreneur has got to be able to see that project from its beginning all the way through the process of startup and moving it out into the market. And so um, what she refers to that as being is effectuation thinking. That's what Chad does. He sees the big picture of, okay, if I take this over or I am going to invent this up, how do I not just get the idea off the ground, but how do I see it through? And that's, a, that's another key focus for us is that the, the person who is the entrepreneurial thinker in our schools can't step away or disappear from the, the supervising and supporting and leading that work, they've got to see it through. That's what I think Chad really yeah. sees himself as bringing to the, uh, to the wheelhouse of innovation is that, that entrepreneurial thinking, but being able to not just get it started, but to see it through. That's a great description of both of them. How did you guys uh, write the book? How did it physically come together? <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of time. Um, that uh, for me was spent in the middle of the night and the very early morning, because that's about the only time I had left in my schedule to contribute. You know, Ira is a person who tends to, he's, he's what I call the person that has the capability to sprinkle the magic into the stories. So he's really good at that. He, he really worked the dialogue to a great extent. Um, the folks out at MakerEd.org, um, Stephanie Chang and Jessica Parker at the time, knew that we had been really ahead of the, the um, curve in terms of bringing maker education into the schools um, at a point in time where actually Dale Doherty and I were early talking around 2011, 10, 11. And he said it'll never, it'll never happen in schools because uh, testing is the dominant form of instruction in America's schools. And I said, I don't believe that that's true. I think that there are places that are doing 
uh, a real nice blend of, yeah, the kids do need to pass the test, but they also need to have rich experiences that um, should be available to all kids, not just to those that, that um, oftentimes get labeled as being the high achievers or the gifted, you know, and that, so I said to Dale, I said, I think this can happen. As we began to work, the folks at Maker Ed came back and said, hey, can we can we just audio tape you guys and transcript it? Because we really think this story is very powerful. So the dialogue, a lot of it came from those tapes, from the transcripts. I like that about the book, that there is some really uh, obviously authentic dialogue between the three of you. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had hours and hours and hours of video. Every time we'd go to a conference, these guys would pull out their... Uh, their microphone and a recorder and, and just say, just you guys talk and we'll record. So that came from that. And, and, and the thing that I would say is that, you know, that we feel like that what we've done is to really do an attempt to qualitatively capture uh, the work that's occurred, that's been done by a lot of different educators at every level. We tell kids stories. uh, We have teacher stories. We have principal stories. Um, that represent the fabric of our our um, system, but that also we bring in stories from other places as well, where we've uh, you know interacted with people and tried to support others up to take some of the steps that we've taken. So when you put that together, um, Chad Chad has been amazing at helping us really figure out the context of. What are the different layers to the story that we need to tell? Um, we've all been contributors in a variety of different ways, but we talk about that, that we're the we're sort of the narrators, but we're not the story. Um, it's the same thing that I've often said when I've been out as a superintendent is that I'm just privileged to be able to share the amazing work that people that are in the trenches in our classrooms, in our uh, you know, roles as principals, as uh, students, and that I may be a, a translator of those stories to a bigger picture audience. But the reality is that that I don't, I don't, I'm not the person who wrote the story. I'm the person that's getting to tell it. It's a beautiful book. Uh, it's really nicely organized. I I love the fact that every chapter ends with a section on your own learning. Uh, and every chapter has a section on provocation, structured inquiry, reflective pause, and take action. So it is, um, it's not a how-to book, but it's a, a thoughtful sort of map for uh, reinventing learning. So a, a great contribution uh, by the three of you. Well, and you know, Tom, people don't write these kinds of books anymore. <laughs> You know, it's a it's a thick book. It's not something that's a quick and easy read. Um, but we felt like that to just to do justice to the story that we needed to really, you know, build that context very differently. And I'll tell you the thing about why the take action. We kind of worked on that last part of it. And one of the things, you know, I started out as a, a staff developer when I first came to central office here in Albemarle. And I did some deep dives. You can hear that, that you know, I'm not a person that rejects research by any stretch. I feel like that we constantly as educators need to be reading, studying, and deepening our knowledge, not just of our own action research, but of what else is out there. But, you know, Bruce um, Joyce and uh, uh, Joyce and Shower's fame of the 1980s did sort of the seminal research into transfer into practice. And they said, 
if people don't take actions after they leave a workshop or a conference keynote or whatever it is that they're doing and actually go back and commit to making a change in practice. And at that point, you know, the, the focus was on how do you how do you connect with a critical friend or a peer? Today we talk about instructional coaches. But if people don't really take an action, if they don't do something, all they've done is read a book, attended a conference, listened to a wonderful TED talk or keynote, or gone to a workshop, and only about 10% of the people that do those things actually ever change anything about their practice, which is one of the reasons why I think that we spend a lot of time tinkering around the edges of change in schools is that you know, it's pretty superficial. And, and what I'd like to think is that if we can in some way energize people to say, let me change one thing, let me do one thing to be a student of learning and to make a difference with others by taking an action, then people are on the path to really doing some transformational change. So that's why we added that take action section. It's, uh, it's terrific. So get the book. Uh, it's called Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Changes Schools. It's from Wiley. Wiley's got a bunch of good books out this summer. Yeah, I would say that another one that's a, a really nice book from Wiley is called Better Together. A lot of the same sentiments that this work is hard. Uh, we we need to learn from and with each other. Uh, Pam, would as our uh, as we close out, would love to just have your reflections on your your next gig. You're moving to the Virginia School Consortium for Learning. Uh, what what do you hope to accomplish there? Well, you know, Tom, it's it's a really interesting piece that I just downloaded better together as soon as I could get access to it and have been reading. And, and I guess that, that you I could turn this around and, and do a quick two minute interview with you about that, um, because I think that that is an incredibly relevant story that you've told with Lydia about how when people network, when schools network, when school districts network together, that what they're able to do is to cross-pollinate the learning. They're able to share the resources. They're able to uh, work together so that people are not necessarily reinventing the wheel, that they're able to do what I call scaling across, that you take what somebody else is doing. And while you're you know, your, your terror, your geography, your um, demographics may be different. You can take a big idea, a bright idea, and have it become something that you are able to bring in and make that difference with kids in the school or district where you work. I see this as, um, this as being a network and that it, one of the challenges and one of the, the opportunities I'm looking forward to is trying to figure out how does it become a true bona fide uh, bona fide network where uh, people are cross-pollinating and sharing their ideas and that we're starting to see a cohesive focus on vision, mission, and goal. And we know when that happens, what you get is collective efficacy. And when you get collective efficacy, what you also get are people who are making a difference with young people in every way possible. So I would say that that what I'd like to, to see the consortium become um, as it evolves from a very good place to maybe an even not better together place is the kind of work you describe. It's uh, it's an exciting opportunity for you to learn from and with 
uh, so many districts across uh, Virginia. It uh, it's going to be fun to watch. I I know um, a lot of us around the country will uh, be eager to to learn from your next chapter. Uh, what a terrific way to wrap up your work at Albemarle with this uh, with this great book and and your amazing contributors, uh, Pam. We we've just really enjoyed learning from you uh, from watching your work, and we're really looking forward to your next chapter. We we appreciate you being on the Getting Smart podcast, Tom. It's been a pleasure, and as you know, I have amazing. Uh appreciation of you as a leader who has really informed and uh, supported up uh, work and who's continued to also evolve, just like I would think all of us aspire to as educators in terms of your own leadership. And so I appreciate it and value and we loved having you visit and um, be able to uh, say I've seen it and I know that what they're describing is real. So thank you so much. I'm a believer. Thanks, Pam. A big thanks to Dr. Pam Moran. We're wishing her all the best as she takes on leadership of the Virginia School Consortium for Learning, a 30-year-old network where she'll bring the same energy and enthusiasm that she brought to Albemarle County Public Schools. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. That's all we have for you today. If you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And for all things innovations and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. We'll see you next week. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.